0: Hey, hey, welcome back to another episode of Scholar Tea, where we are two scholars giving you the tea. I am Cameron Carl. And I'm Shauna.
1: I feel like I should have a second name now, though, because I'm just Shauna.
0: That's okay, just Shauna. I'm just saying when I blow up one day, I would like to use Cameron Carl as my name. So I'm going to start here and say, Mm. and you all can be like, I knew him when, you know?
1: Mm. And not to be confused with Carl Thomas.
0: I don't know how you confuse that, but no. (laughs) And Carl is my middle name, just so people have context. I don't know. those confusing people, ACPA. Because it was like Cameron Carl and Shauna. And I was like, who's Cameron? I was like, oh, because like in those spaces, I don't go by that that name. Well, I think it was written in like the pan book. And I was like, they listen to the podcast. And that's the name. Blowing up. Cameron Carl. But don't go looking on me on LinkedIn looking for Cameron Carl. He is Maybe he's there, but that ain't me.
1: We want to welcome everybody to another episode of Scholar T, Tim Check, as we always do. Uh, today, if your mood were an Angela Bassett role, who would you be on today and why?
0: I think today, I am on that Bernadine, you know, been in a relationship for a while, you know, 11 years, I sacrificed, you know, you know, Mary J. Blatt's song. Um,
1: Secreter. <laughs>
0: And she said, get your shit, get your shit and get out, okay? And I think I'm coming off of a night where I had to like put an email together that had to go to the entire department to respond to something. Tamara beat me to it in the response. So then I was like, okay, you know, Tamara came with it. Uh, And then I was like, I want to be supportive of what she shared. So this black woman is not hanging out there by herself and has done it for almost 20 years in the context of where we work. but it was just something like, okay, I can't let this, I can't let this ride. And I have to like say something in the essence of like shared governance coming off as like, oh, this is leadership and we're getting input. When really, you don't care about our input. Otherwise you would have done this a different way. And, and that needs to be named and acknowledged. So I'm coming off of that. And not that I'm ready to burn some shit up, but do better. That's all I'm going to say. I am a torchbearer. Are you in a secret society? Yes. You <laughs> I would be
1: Marie Laveau from American Horror Story. Because she didn't take no shit. First of all, Angela Bassett, Bad Mama Jamma. And and every role. actually, right, every role, I, I put her. In the same category as Denzel Washington at this point, it's Angela Bassett ass. Like I'm always just going to see Angela. It's always kind of the same persona, mm-hmm. but I don't mind. Yes, and
0: that is <laughs> a good point because there are some people that I do mind, mm-hmm. <laughs> like Tommy. Oh, what's Tommy his name? Davidson.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Same old goofball. Yeah, I don't mind. She's just a queen. But her persona or her ability to play Marie Laveau in American Horror Story, I was watching Coven just so I could watch Angela Bassett. Mm-hmm. And so if I were anyone today, it would be her, because even though she was super duper minoritized in an environment where Black folks are generally populated. Um, she still did not care. She didn't take any stuff. She spoke from the head of her family. Consequences be down because this was the thing to do. This was right. And if you crossed her, she killed you. So uh, that's how I'm feeling today.
0: Don't cross, don't cross Shauna, honey. <laughs> put, a, put a little hex oh. on you. <laughs> so Shauna, this episode, like all the other episodes, we are going to highlight our scholar of the week. Dr. Chris Travers is doing some important work. I have some thoughts. You have some thoughts. I want to spill the tea on the role of board of trustees in holding institution accountable for student success I want us to talk to Dr. Susanna Munoz. That interview, I think the listeners are going to love. There were so many gems. There were so many reflective moments. After we interviewed her, I went and journaled. And I would encourage those that do journal to do that after you listen to this episode. We're going to talk about what's problematic, which is some <laughs> things I just highlighted in our temp check-in. It's this performative nature of academic leadership. is going to come through with those jokes. We're going to see if I can laugh. And then we're going to throw out some affirmations. Sound good? Sounds great. And I do think. you. gonna laugh. I need a laugh today. I'm ready.
1: I'm gonna bring it and you're gonna laugh. So this week, we are honoring Dr. Chris Travers, who is a visiting assistant professor at Denison University in Ohio. Chris joined the Center for Black Studies at Denison in the role of visiting instructor for the fall of 2021. He teaches courses like social justice movements among peoples of color and is an educator, writer and speaker. His research explores the ways in which faith, love and gender inform the lived experiences of black folks in education, particularly Particularly, black men. His most recent work connects love and healing frameworks with anti-heteronormativity among black men. He is the co-founder with Dr. Wilson Okello of Communion Collective, a series of conversations with black men regarding the psyche of black young adult men and how patriarchal masculinities disrupt black men's ability to engage in a true love ethic guided by Bell Hooks. Communion, The Female Search for Love. He has scholarship published in several research journals, including the Journal of Negro Education, Spectrum, a journal on Black men, Inside Higher Ed, and the Journal of Diversity in Higher Education.
0: Shout out to our Scholar of the Week, Dr. Chris Travers, who's a dear friend and brother. And Shauna, I have the privilege of engaging in those communion collective convenings, and they are truly transformative. So thank you, Dr. Travers, for your brotherhood. We'll invite you to the monograph. Dr. Travers. Yes. Yes. Okay. I love that idea. Mm -hmm. So let's spill some tea, Shana. Okay. So Dr. Charlie Nams. Do you know Charlie Nams? Charlie (laughs) Nams. He's from from Pine Bluff, Arkansas. So I met Charlie Nams in undergrad as a wonderful budding student that became an alpha. He's a member of Alpha Alpha Fraternity Incorporated. About the time, he was the vice chancellor for diversity and inclusion uh, had a different title at the time at Indiana University Bloomington. He went on to be the chancellor at North Carolina Central University and transformed some of the peaks um, and successes that the institution is currently still benefiting from. So he's a leader, a pillar in terms of HBCU, leadership and higher education. And he recently wrote an article for diverse issues in higher ed titled, trustees must be held accountable for student success. And in the article, he argues, just as the board of trustees are accountable for the fiscal health of the institution on whose board they serve, they are equally accountable for ensuring student academic success. And he offers some key questions for which trustees must demand clear answers, not excuses or explanations. Questions like, what has happened to the students who enrolled at the institution four years ago, but who did not graduate this year? Why do students stop out or withdraw temporarily or drop out of the institution? What strategies does the institution have in place to enhance the likelihood of student academic success? And disaggregated, what are the institution's graduation rates by gender, ethnicity, socioeconomic status, discipline, geography, and other factors? And then what incentives, if any, does the institution have in place to increase student academic success and graduation? He concludes the article with this, whether these are the right questions boards of trustees should be asking about student academic success is undoubtedly open to debate. But what is not debatable is the fact that trustees are accountable for all aspects of an institution's effectiveness. No matter how much money the president raises, the research prowess of the faculty, or the number of championships won by athletic teams, the most important measure of an institution's success is the extent to which its students succeed academically following graduation. So Shana, what say you regarding the 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 discussion of the Board of Trustees role in ensuring students' academic success. It's oftentimes an afterthought or they package it in budgetary, Questions or lines of PR. So, any thoughts on what Dr. Nalbs is calling for?
1: I I can't help but shake my head. I do think that it is dependent upon what kinds of institutions we're talking about, mm. because the ways that um, certain institutions value athletics, for example, is very different than others, or the ways some institutions value prestige or fundraising. I think all that is contextualized by the fact that we don't even have a clear understanding or vision on what academic success means for our students. I think more often than not, folks are referring to persistence or making sure uh, students are making to graduation. But I mean, I would also like to see students graduating holistically fulfilled and not feeling like they're graduating by the skin of their teeth or not feeling like they had to bottle themselves up and shave pieces of themselves off of themselves just to graduate. I don't think that we even have a clear understanding of what um, success could mean, especially for the most minoritized most vulnerable students that are entering into higher education. Uh, This also is connecting to the conversation we had in our last episode. I I applaud trustee members, like it's a big job. And Mm -hmm. I also acknowledge that there are some trustees that come that are also working big jobs, like their full time jobs are big, and then they do this. And I just don't know how you could do both and do them both well. Because if you're not paying attention to those intricacies, if you really don't know how the institution's functioning, because you don't have time to read the minutes, you're not responding to emails, you can't dig into any of the reports, you're not writing your reports, and then you show up to the committee meeting and you're reading the cliff note trying to catch up. It's obvious, it's clear, like you're barely (laughs) keeping up with what's going on, like you're not governing at all.
0: So true.
1: I do wonder what would it mean to have trustees, like that's their job. Their job is to help offer another layer of governance that is focused, that is streamlined, that is actually carefully curtailed to the day to day of the institution from a visionary, broad based standpoint, yeah, yeah. not the weeds, not, you know, digging into the weeds. But what would it mean to have trustees that are actually fully engaged so they could even think to
0: ask these questions is Absolutely. my thought. Absolutely. I, I do want to give a shout out to, and I think we should have him on a future episode, maybe next season. Uh, but Mr. Jeremy Morris is a board of trustee at Indiana University. And we went to undergrad together. He did the higher education program and then he went on to law school and is a practicing lawyer in downtown Indianapolis and was recently, I think about a year ago, might've been two years now, but was elected to the Board of Trustees. So at Indiana University, the board, I believe has one or two alumni elections of board members. Some boards, as you all know, are appointed by the governor. Some are voting. Some are elected by the state. Like each state has their own thing going on with especially these public institutions and how these structures are, are created. My shout out to him though, is that he was in, involved in undergrad. And he transferred that lens over now to his role as board of trustees. And he's he, he'll he ask critical questions in these board of trustees meetings. He'll go to student events um, that no board of trustees has ever gone to in terms of minoritized students understanding that the board of trustees wants to understand what student engagement looks like and feels like, not just hear about it in a Cliff Notes, to your point, version of a report. And watching him on social media, for those of us that voted for him, he's like giving us update. Like he's giving us updates of what's happening this month or this week in the context of Indiana University. And as an alum, I'm looking at this. I'm like, okay, I know with him in the room, the questions are getting asked. The critical lens is being used. But I also think that his background in higher education then contributes to now how he shows up in terms of being in this role of board of trustees. It does concern me, like if it was a job, um, in the sense of what what accountability then looks like and who people answer to. I do think Board of Trustees need to answer to somebody, but then what does that what does that all look like and the power it plays? I don't like the I don't like the governor playing a role in, in these things because oftentimes members that are appointed to these Look at this wonderful state of Florida. So these trustee positions don't have the background, don't have the critical analysis. Even if you come from another field, they don't even have the organizational, structural, organizational theory understanding of how higher education works and systems. And they're sitting around a table making decisions that are impacting people for generations with no context.
1: Well, that's the cool. tea. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yes, let's maybe engage your colleague slash friend. Um, we can also invite Isaiah Oliver. He's my cohort mate from CMU. He is now the chair of our board of trustees. Oh, let's and do a I- board of
0: trustees panel. We should. do that. I like that.
1: There's something about having a contemporary on the board that just makes it feel at least like there might be some hope. And I haven't fully fleshed out this idea of what it means to have folks employed to be trustees. You know, I just can't think of any other way right now where we can offer folks the ability to feel less stratified, feel less splintered in their thinking so they could actually focus and, and know what's going on. At the institution, uh, beyond what is shared and what is framed by that institution
0: each month. Well, that's what's happening, these scholar T streets. This is part one of this discussion. Part two is a follow up. So, we're going to try to get some people in to engage with us because I think this is an important topic. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, today we are welcoming Dr. Susana Munoz. She is an associate professor and coordinator of the Higher Education Leadership Doctoral Specialization in the School of Education at Colorado State University. Her scholarly interests center on the experiences of underserved populations in higher education, and she utilizes multiple research methods as mechanisms to examine these matters with the ultimate goal of informing immigration policy and higher education practices. Her first book, Identity, Social Activism, and the Pursuit of Higher Education, The Journey Stories of Undocumented and Unafraid Community Activists, by Peter Lang Publishing, highlights the light, highlights the lives of 13 activists who grapple with their legality as a salient identity. Her research can also be found in the International Journal of Qualitative Studies, Qualitative Inquiry, the Journal of Student Affairs, Research and Practice, and Teachers College Record. Susanna, thank you for joining us today. Um, we were really appreciative and grateful of your time today.
2: Yes. Thank you for having me. A big fan of your podcast. So it's an honor to be here, to be in community with you all today.
1: And, and full disclosure, you're one of the reasons why this podcast exists. So... <laughs> Just putting that out there. So first we were just wondering, you know, you've been taking some time to focus on your research. Um, Talk to us a bit about your sabbatical and some of the most restorative things you've been doing during this time.
2: Yeah, so I think one of the things that, you know, I want to also mention is that the, the sabbatical, being able to apply for sabbatical as a faculty member, that's a privilege in itself, right? Not everyone has that benefit of taking a break break from the Academy and, and just, you know, focusing on and going inward and focusing on sort of research and rest. That's the definition of sabbatical, but, you know, the Academy likes to have you apply for it and, you know, and put down all the things that you're going to be doing. And so one of the things that I I did opt to do is do a whole year. The also privileged um, things that I was able to do is, is to take a full year because I, you know, have some savings, the institution only pays for um, once semester of sabbatical. And so the, the faculty is uh, responsible for the other half of their salary. So we made it work. And that was an investment in myself. That was a gift to myself. It was much needed. I um, spent the year going back and forth to the University of Arizona in Tucson, Arizona. And um, to be honest with you, at the very beginning, sabbatical was a difficult. It was difficult because my body didn't know how to pause, And so I was feeling Lots of feelings, guilt. I was feeling like I was lazy. I was feeling like very negative about just taking a pause. And my body was reacting to not allowing me to pause. I shed tears a lot for no reason. And I, I've come to understand that's probably part of my healing process. And I also have come to understand that my body was uncomfortable about pausing because for the last 15 years I've been socialized a grind, been socialized to produce, I've been socialized nonstop, and probably in a not healthy way. And so um, for my body to sort of um, have this reaction around the pause, it, it made me angry, to be honest, about how I've been mistreating myself in ways that, you know, we've all been sort of socialized to produce and, and to as academics, as scholars, as practitioners, I think we, you know, we're always on the go, we're always on the grind. And so, you know, for me, for me, my body to be uncomfortable and not recognize that the pause was good for me is um something that I really took to heart. And so in in that spirit, you know, I I learned a lot about myself, right? Um I am a the extrovert with a capital And so to be alone in my friend, Dr. Judy Kiyama Marquez, as who I kind of stayed with a lot of times. And and so I made friends with her dog, you know, I stayed in her house and I was by myself a lot. And so I was really learning to be um, grounded within myself and learn to love the company of myself, you know, Uh, and so it it took a while, right? And so once I did that, then I began to sort of, you know, began to be more curious about like, what is this happening And what does it mean, right? Why is it happening? And what does it mean? So yeah, so I I think I had moments of lots of clarity, and I feel a lot more grounded in my life right now than I have been in the last 15 years. And I think part of it had to do with this trip that I took with the University of Arizona called the Cielo Program. And the Cielo Program is, oh, I'm going to mess up on what it stands for, but it's like a cultural experience that's rooted in sort of Inclusion, And so you're taking a group of st- undergraduate students that are from like first gen DACA students, uh, minoritized students, and um, you're taking them on this sort of experience, cultural experience to Hawaii. And um, what's really unique about it, it's done in a very ethical way that considers the land, that considers the culture. We had a cultural practitioner with us who is um, indigenous to um, Hawaii. And so I learned about just being in right relationship with the land, being um, grounded in space and really just being present much more than I thought I was in the past. But that experience really allowed me to just listen more to myself. And, you know, we were able to do what a, a water ceremony called Kapukai. And that is a water cleansing healing ceremony. And that was also very transformational for me because it was just being in the ocean, the ocean is my church. And so I was able to sort of go in and call into my ancestors and call into my guides and just, you know, being set some intentions for myself or my community in the world and, and being able to let go of the things that have been weighing down on me. So I really came out of that water such much more powerful and stronger than I've ever felt in my life. So I think those experiences really have solidified and have me sort of question about how I re-enter into the academy <laughs> and how do I spend the, ne- the next 20, 15 years in ways that no longer serves me. I understand now what I was doing in the last 15 years can is unsustainable and I am no longer interested in keeping that practice. And so it's really, Really about like, how do I move forward in ways that feel authentic, feel more grounding, and prioritizes my joy and prioritizes um, myself, you know, and so I've gone really inward, I've developed this sort of spiritual understanding of myself in ways that I haven't done before. And yeah, sabbatical was a great opportunity to do that. And so again, it was an investment in myself, and I'd say has saved my life, to be honest, because I think I could couldn't sustain the lifestyle that I have been in the process of, of living, you know, before.
0: Susanna, that is that is so powerful. And, and it sounds so restorative. Mm-hmm. And for somebody that is eligible for a sabbatical in 24-25 academic year, the conversations with you and your sister scholar Michelle Espino-Lira, shout out to Michelle, had me thinking about what do I want my sabbatical to look like and having me consider things that I just didn't consider before, right? It was like, I was thinking about what's up, what I need to put on the application to say I'm going to do, but you both have had me really think more critically about that time and it being a, a time to pause so thank you for sharing that with, with the listeners, because some of the things, you know, water is my church and how you say you came out of that, came out of the water and then to reimagine then how we want to then re-engage, right? That's the part mm-hmm. that I think I want to make sure that I'm, I'm thinking about is not just it's a break, but then I, after this break, you then have to re-engage with the academy that is mm-hmm. constantly harming us. So, so thank you for, for those gems and and for me, what you offered myself and thinking more critically about. What a sabbatical can do for us um, when we think about the work that we're doing.
2: Yes, absolutely.
0: Uh, full disclosure and learned from you for a quite a while now. Mm-hmm. And I'm always, whenever I see you, you will always, always get the love for me because uh, how you showed up for us graduate students of color at Iowa State University when you were a postdoc and we were just entering into the doctoral studies. I am forever grateful because um, mm-hmm. when Sharon Freezebrit says we retain each other, you definitely helped retain us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, in, that, in that place of Ames, Iowa. So I'm forever grateful for you, but that was also the first time critical scholar that was really thinking about the work in terms of how our lived experience is informing what policy looks like and, mm-hmm. and your work with um, undocumented activists, DACA students, students who, who are undocumented. Um, I would love for you to share your insights on what educators and student affairs professionals can continue to do better um, when supporting students um, who are navigating higher education who might identify as und- undocumented, who might identify as activists, who might be navigating DACA?
2: Yeah. So love right back at you because I think, you know, your cohort, that was a special time, you know, when you were a grad student. And so yet yeah, we retain each other. You were my retention package for sure. And so, um, and um, one of the things that, you know, in in doing this work with with um, undocumented students and, and DACA students, one of the things that I have really learned is, is, that this is an ongoing process, right? And this process of, of on immigration, like we, we got here through, you know, the 400 years of our history here in the you know, United States. And so uh, we've, you know, passed exclusionary acts against, you know, certain ethnic groups, you know, the Chinese Exclusionary Act. When we have, you know, faltered in our economic times, we've always blamed sort of immigrants and brown and black people, you know, for our economic woes. And so understanding that, you know, what, we, what I call racist nativism is really rooted in the white supremacy of our United States. And so I just wanted to put that out there first and foremost. And then the second thing is in working with with activists, with working with undocumented students and and DACA, what I've learned is leadership matters, context matters. And so in working with with, uh, faculty and staff and how they can be more humanizing, um, more proactive about serving undocumented students, I think about the um, the consciousness development that has to happen with administrators and faculty and staff. And what I mean by that is how do we just begin to understand that, you know, race and racism is an everyday occurrence, right? And that um, racist nativism is an everyday occurrence. And then how do we also, I'm trying to understand what I also call this legal consciousness, right? Like how do we understand sort of how race and racism impacts somebody without legal status, in the United States. And so that begins with understanding sort of what, what it is it mean to, to not have this arbitrary piece of paper, right, that, that grants you this legal status and as a student, as a college student. And so it begins with that consciousness, right, that understanding that, you know, your student's going to show up into your classroom, but they're also worrying about like deportation of their family members. They could be worrying about like, OK, I don't have DACA, so how will I work and apply this? degree after I graduate and so it does take you know faculty and staff and administrators to understand sort of those those elements and those barriers and challenges that impact um, this particular um, the group of students and so I think right now, I would um, think that one of the main challenges is that we are seeing more undocumented students enter higher education without DACA. These are DACA eligible individuals, so individuals are were are eligible to apply for DACA, but because of the um, the the Supreme Court decision that came down, there you know there's you know those that are eligible aren't able to apply. So there's no new applications being accepted for folks to apply for DACA. Um, Um, And so you're having folks that are coming in, you know, on So it feels to me like this is like 2010 again, right? You know, where we didn't have DACA. Um, so we're having again to figure out, all right, how do we um how do we create opportunities for students to to work on campus that don't have um, you know, DACA status? How do we create fellowships for them to continue on to graduate school? How do we also make sure that career services understands that we have to also talk with our employers about, you know, how to how to work with somebody that's, you know, has a college degree, has these credentials, but um, doesn't have work authorization. So shout out to organizations like Immigrant Rising at a uh, California um, that do a lot of training around entrepreneurship for, for immigrants and that do lots of trainings around um, how undocumented students can create um, LLCs or corporations to to make themselves employable. So that's something that I feel like we're, we're not necessarily talking about, but you know, and it, that's one example. And the other example is that when the majority of the microaggressions that occur for undocumented students and DACA students happen in the classroom, and it's more so around their peer to peer relationships, right? And it's more so around a faculty member, not necessarily knowing how to navigate sort of a tent, like a contentious conversation in which immigration, you know, came up or, you know, had a student that said that in an engineering class uh, um, they were using the example of like a border wall um, in some engineering class and so the student was sort of like really caught off guard about that and then there and then a topic of immigration came up as a result of that but the professor engineering professor didn't necessarily know how to sort of like facilitate a conversation where there was you know folks that were very adamant about having that border and very adamant about sort of like keep you know keeping certain individuals out when you have a student that that border impacts them you know inside your classroom and so I just I think you know we've come a long way in higher education in supporting undocumented students and in many ways I think we've we haven't done enough right and so you know I think if you asked me that question like 10 years ago I've and I look at what we have now I'm like yes we have like these state tuition policies we have you know these resource centers you know um, that are helpful for undocumented students but what we're not doing is really addressing you know the the climate, right the campus culture and climate that impacts students. Um, and so there's times where, you know, after, You know, when we saw a lot of emboldened racist nativism and examples of that on our campuses, um, much more during the 2016 elections, um, and I've always sort of in my mind said, we've always had that. It's just that it just, you know, somebody gave permission to be much more out in the open about it. But that's always been occurring on our college campuses. And so I think now, you know, just because we don't have, you know, a certain, we have you know, a certain president in the administration doesn't necessarily equate that things are better, right? And so I think we just have to be really vigilant about just maintaining that spirit of activism of, you know, what is it that we have to do? What is it that we we must do? Because it's about humanizing spaces for folks that are paying to come to your colleges. You know, you've welcomed them into your college. Now let's make sure that there's a humanizing environment to make sure that they can learn and thrive and grow. So, um, so that's kind of you know, where I'm at with with my research. And I'm kind of right now looking at a framework that also, you know, unpacks servingness. So what does undocu servingness look like with like community colleges, but also, you know, um, you know, HSIs, we, we count bodies, right? In, in our enrollment for this designation. At what point do we, we just really need to understand what it means to serve and in ways that it's not necessarily it's it's intersectional, right? And so so that's sort of where I'm kind of living right now in terms of the the work and thinking around my research.
1: Well and it's my- Moments like these where I wish that we were better skilled across the board, across disciplines, And seeing the interconnectivity through the disciplines because I think STEAM has a lot to offer here in this conversation. When you think Mm -hmm. about what the natural sciences say on biodiversity, right? Like that's our argument right there for why diversity on a social level matters and makes a difference and informs our experiences as people. I I just, I hate that we have to make it a bottom line conversation around how diversity helps the financial structure of an institution rather than Mm -hmm. thinking about how it helps the health well being and helps everyone to thrive. I could go all day about that mm-hmm. one, but Similarly related, though, um, in thinking about um, how students or even undocumented faculty and staff might be experiencing these issues. But more broadly, like what advice do you have to offer us in higher education, especially those amongst us who are committed to the work of DEI education that is currently under attack, maybe facing erasure? Uh, What kinds of advice do you have to offer around those pieces?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. You know, as I think about, you know, Cameron here in Florida, you know, lots of colleagues in Texas. And you know, you sit back and you're like, really, this is happening? This is the pathway we're decided to take? Okay. But to also understand like it's it's not a new strategy, right? We we've seen this strategy before. And I think the advice that I would give administrators and even you know, students and staff and faculty is the understanding that we we harbor this resiliency in ourselves, right? And I'm I'm going to really unpack resiliency because, you know, we endure, you know, we fight, we advocate. And I think, you know, it's labor that's uncompensated. It's labor that is not necessarily in our job description, you know, and so thinking about, and I'm going to go inward a little bit, thinking about how to create sort of like this community and like build solidarity with other individuals in that mind frame and in the spirit of activism and so it's not necessarily like you know like we know that there's this machine that is you know over us you know spewing out hate spewing out these anti-crt you know anti-banning books we understand that but then it's like how do you how do you sort of take it back to grassroots, right? How do you take it back to your, you know, building solidarity and community with those that, you know, are impacted by this. And so it really is about taking yourself, we can't live in a, in resiliency mode forever, right? That's not sustainable, but we can take care of each other and ourselves in the, in this climate. And so then it becomes a question of like, all right, how are we making sure that there's not necessarily this burnout? How are we making sure that folks that are doing this extra labor are seen and compensated? And and so I think a lot of it has to do with you know making sure that you're creating community and conversation because of this climate that we're under. And it's you know it's grassroots, right? Nobody's like, yeah, we can do a task force, you know, to address these issues, but I think you all, we all need to think about like for ourselves, like what is it that you need? What is it that you are needing to build around you, build with, you know, build for that sustains your spirit, your, your humanity and your joy. And so I know that there's, and it might be a different answer than you are expecting, but I, I, I'm honestly in a, in a mind frame of like the academy is going to be the academy, right? People are going to, you know, like these politicians are going to always spew out whatever they're going to spew out right? So it's always going to be there. I think for me personally, I've come to the conclusion that it's not where my energy, like I'm putting my energy back into the community. I'm putting my love and joy back into those that deserve it, right? And so um, I know the academy is not going to love me back. So why am I putting my energy into something that, you know, doesn't necessarily you know, is going to give me, they're not responsible for my validation, right? And so thinking about like, where do I get that, that sort of more in in alignment with who I am, my community and the people that I work with and for. So that's what I got.
0: (laughs) Well, I think that's wonderful. A segue into our last question that that we have for you. And it's, you alluded to this, but you weren't explicit. So we're going to ask it. In what ways are you going to choose yourself Mm post-sabbatical as you re-enter the academy?
2: Yeah. That is a great question. I mean, and it's work for me because I am always the yes person, right? I'm always like, can you do this? Yeah. Can you do that? Yes, I can do that. Of course I can do that. Um, And for me, you know, post sabbatical is really the question about like, where do I want my energy to be at? What is it that's giving me joy and what is it that's nourishing for my spirit? And if I can hold all those things and the things that I agree to, I think, you know, that's definitely going to, you know, allow me to walk into the academy for the next 20 years in a much different mindset that I have been you know, before, because there's nothing that I turned down, to be honest, I'll be frank with you, there is nothing that I've ever really turned down. Um, And that includes doing six keynotes in a month, right? And so there's, there was no, no was not in my vocabulary. And I think part of it is that, um, I had to really unpack for myself why I needed to to do it, right? In in terms of like, what does it mean to say yes to something that you feel like doesn't necessarily serve you, but you want to do it just to, in your mind, stay relevant, stay, you know, seen, you know? And yeah, that's no longer, that's no longer in my repertoire right now, you know? And I'm not going to, you know, say yes to things that, um, again, don't nourish my spirit, They'll bring me joy um, and, you know, puts my energy in in a very positive light. And so, so yeah, I think that's kind of how I'm going to walk through the next years of Academy life, right. And choosing to really honor and nourish my soul and spirit in this process much more than I have been in the past.
1: We're really grateful for everything that you shared with us so far. And we've come to the time in the interview in a moment where we do encourage people to think about fluidity. You have to be dichotomous. You have to choose this or that. No departure, no waffling. You have to pick one.
2: Okay. I love this. Yes. So
1: cyclones (laughs) or rams?
2: Oh my gosh. Oh, (laughs) you know, cyclones. I got to say cyclones. I'm a cyclone every day go, all day
0: go cyclones
2: cyclones.
0: Lizard. so same vein iowa or colorado as far as states
2: colorado yeah writing mm. books or
0: writing journal articles
2: mm. i would say book books a little bit more creativity with that yeah books
0: mm. a desert resort or a nice beach resort
2: Beach, 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 <laughs> beach. Give me the beach. Me too. Ash or A E R A? Oh. <laughs> um I am going to just, I, I'll do Ash. I mean, Ash is that sort of family for me. So I'll do more Ash.
0: Susanna, so, you remember this. So give the people a story and note. Remember, Iowa State used to have that bomb party at Ash on Friday night? <laughs> yes. Last year, people were acting like they forgot. I was like, Iowa State used to have that reception that used to be jumping.
2: We wrote that, we were the blue book for that. <laughs> Right. Okay. Wait, nobody brought the DJ out. Nobody. Nobody had the dance party. <laughs> but yeah, shout out to the Laura, Dr. Laura Rendon years at Iowa State. Yes. Yes.
0: Last one, a good cocktail or a good glass of wine.
2: Mm. I am saying cocktail at the moment i I think it's uh, I think living in Arizona has exposed me to some great margaritas there so mm. yeah I was gonna ask your,
0: your uh, spirit of choice well Susanna you uh, are an amazing person you are a brilliant scholar and you are even more outstanding human being and we are so um, grateful for what you shared with our listeners and with us and offering yourself up during this time of sabbatical so we are forever oh. grateful so thank you
2: Oh, my pleasure. Keep doing what y'all are doing. It's powerful and it's energizing. So I appreciate you all too. Thank you.
0: Susanna is absolutely one of the most thoughtful people that I have ever engaged with. And I just really appreciated the gems that she shared. She makes me excited to go on sabbatical because I want that reflective time that, you know, Michelle Espino uh, Lira came back with that uh, Suzanne Munoz. Like I just feel like they're in a reflective space that I am that I am uh seeking at this point in my life and in my at this stage of my career. And I'm excited to get some of that time because I just feel like the energy they're giving off. I want it.
1: Well, the ocean is my church. Like what is it? Ooh. And, and trying to find that ocean in your day-to-day, that centering in your day-to-day. So mm. it's not like living for the weekend or living for sabbatical, like you're actually living your life and feeling fulfilled every day.
0: Oh, yes. Check me, honey. Check me. Go in. Let have. <laughs> mm.
1: Well, let's talk about what's problematic.
0: <laughs> so what's problematic is something I mentioned at the top of the episode with our check-in. And it's really fresh of something that happened recently in my own context. And this is performative nature of academic leadership. Um, I definitely think this happens in other fields and other professions, but I'm speaking from my experience and from my lens. And what's problematic is we don't do this performative nature of saying we're going to have this democratic process and we're going to vote and we're going to get everybody's input on something major, but don't give people the time to actually give the feedback for the people receiving the feedback to digest it and then move about in an intentional and purposeful way. So then the feedback and the vote just feels like this performative display of leadership from the university administration um, to say that they got some faculty input while following a process. And we all, we sometimes do this with our students as well. So therefore it comes off as power over instead of power with, and shout out to LeaderShape because I just got back from LeaderShape too. Um, and we talk about power over, power with, and then power within. And really thinking more critically um, about these steps, um, I'm sure People are just trying to check boxes, it's very procedural, but they also speak to a culture and a climate at an institution um, that talks about shared governance. Shared governance has become this this appeasement process, I think, in higher ed that doesn't really being practiced at the majority of, of institutions. Any thoughts on the problematic nature of performative leadership, Shana?
1: Well, I also think, you know, as much as I don't like politics, I understand and I can play along when necessary at this point. I think there's also this moment where you're sitting in a space and yes, the, the, the framing is we are seeking feedback and no one can read the room and <laughs> realize that we're not. <laughs> and people are like really actually giving feedback. And I'm looking around like, they don't want it. They're not asking for it. They don't like, care. Just, they don't care. They're just extending. We're extending this meeting for ourselves. Like, you know, the decision was made, right? Like they're really they're really just telling us that this is what was going to happen. And so I have learned, or at least I, re- I respect more, even if people don't like it. The kind of person I've decided to be in that space is just transparent when a decision has been made. And talking about the fact that it has been made and sharing why, and letting folks know what the next steps are. Mm -hmm. Like, don't waste my time asking me or telling me that you're asking me for my thoughts, my feedback, my consideration, when none of it will be inculcated. You're just wasting everybody's (laughs) time. And it's frustrating because I don't see my feedback reflected in the
0: thing that you said you were going to do. So at this point, just be honest with me. Don't lie to me. I'm not a child. And people have been fooled that that's good leadership. Oh my gosh, they got our input. Are they really what? I really like how they're leading the program, the department, the university, I'm like, that, that's not leadership. Like that's You ain't like- <laughs> got a lie, Craig.
1: You ain't got a lie. Like, I think anybody that's intuitive, that has any kind of critical thought would know to see through that at this point. So what I have learned over the years, especially more recently, like that's not the kind of person I want to be when it comes mm-hmm. to offering leadership. Decisions do need to be made. Talk about how decisions are made. In what points or times will decisions be made without feedback? And then defining shared governance for your respective yeah. institution like what does that really mean and how can you do it in a healthy way don't do the dog and pony show because then i don't believe anything that comes out your mouth
0: oof, oof, oof. well that's what's problematic this week
1: <laughs> give it to me give it to me give it to me
0: Slatter, you got this uh
1: let's see how this goes you ready ready what do you call a middle-aged man on some stairs
0: um i'm not sure
1: Step daddy. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. You're not going to like this one. You know, Google has a brand new car, it has okay. a search engine. Oh, okay. What's a preacher's
0: favorite breakfast?
1: Hmm, grits, bread, ham, and cheese.
0: <laughs> bread ham and <laughs> cheese. Okay.
1: Fried, you know, like fried ham and cheese.
0: Fred fried ham and, ham and cheese. And
1: cheese.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Who is Terrence Howard's favorite comic book character?
0: Taraji, mean. super main, main, okay, main. Your impersonation could be a little stronger there. I've seen you do better impersonations. Oh,
1: I'll do better. <laughs> what is Terrence Howard's favorite lettuce?
0: Oh, this is still the same person. <laughs> super main lettuce, romaine, romaine. Yes.
1: <laughs> I made you laugh. I told that you. Good. Oh, good. That was good. That was excited.
0: That was good. My little blackity black jokes. That was good, that was good. Well, Shana, we have some celebrations and some shout outs. And one big one is we want to acknowledge our friend, friend of the podcast. You, you're gonna hear him on a later episode and during our live episode. But shout out to Dr. Leonard Taylor, who has been named Director of the National Survey of Student Engagement, (NESSIE). The appointment begins in July, and he will also be an Associate Professor in the Higher Education and Student Affairs Program. Shout out to IU Hesa. Um And I believe he is the first Black Director of NESSIE. So this is a historical appointment. Door. Somebody correct me if I'm wrong, but I've been at the IU streets for a while, and as a an al- double alum, I believe he is the first.
1: And Roxy Yee, all- also uh, gained a promotion. She is now an associate professor in educational leadership at Fresno State.
0: Yay. Shout out, shout out, shout out. Celebrating, celebrating, celebrating. People are out here doing the thing. Okay. Like Angela Bassett. Angela Bassett did the thing. Y'all did the thing. And shout out also to JT Snipes, who is also an associate professor at
1: SIUE.
0: Yes. Co-host of the Blacktivist podcast. Congratulations.
1: I'm loving it. I do love it. It, it is the season for good news.
0: There was a picture at one of the events. I think it was Diamond Honoree. It's a random picture in the sense of how we all got into the picture. And I don't remember them calling for it, but it so happened that all these Black faculty that are really young were in the picture. And I looked at it. I was like, no, oh, look at us, look at us, the future of, of the direction that we need to be taking, you know, higher education. Um, so shout out to the people on the On the grind, doing the thing.
1: And speaking of pictures, I did appreciate the Latine presence at NASPA and the pillars of the profession that were recognized this year. That was also amazing. Mm -hmm. So tis the season. Well, I just wanted to say that it's been an enduring semester. We have had highs, we've had lows, but we have endured. Hopefully we thrived in the course of the semester instead of wriggled and struggled through and so our wish for you that you are taking time for yourself, that you're spending time with yourself to center yourself and that you find your ocean.
0: I'm going to need that. This has been another episode of Scholar Tea. We have some more episodes coming this season as you enter your summer break. So stay with us and find some time to get some restorative energy. Until next time, see you in them academic streets. Blue, 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 blue. Ha ha ha!